Lord God, we thank you for your son Jesus and the grace that we've received through him, the redemption that he won for us. We thank you for the gift of the spirit that dwells in us. We thank you that you are our heavenly father and that you love us. And I ask that as we study your word that you would increase our love for you and our trust in you and that you would just grow us more and more into the image of Christ in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. So it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So uh, just a couple things on verses 13 and 14. So in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the result of receiving the gospel of salvation is that we become sealed with the Holy Spirit. Um... Any thoughts on what that means? What verse is this again? Ephesians 1, verse 13. What is a seal? It's like a stamp that uh, validates the authenticity of something in the letter or, or a document. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it is like it's a proof of authenticity, right? Where did this thing come from? Well, the seal on it shows where it came from. When I worked at Chase Bank, one of the things that I did as a licensed um, securities uh, banker was I could do what are called medallion seals. And it's, it's like a notary, but like a supercharged notary having to do with uh, stocks and bonds and things like that. And it literally crimps the paper to show that I'm authenticating the identity of the person here, right? So that's one aspect of a seal, is it shows the authenticity or it shows from whom this thing has come. And uh, that's a beautiful aspect of this because it's not sealed based on you, it's the Holy Spirit who is authenticating this work that Jesus has done, that's powerful. What's another aspect of a seal? Yeah, it keeps something closed, right? Um, it, it secures the contents inside. Um, probably what, what uh, Paul has in mind here is this old thing that they would do with letters, right? So you'd write a letter, and you'd close it, and you'd take some wax, and you'd melt the wax on it, and then you'd impress your family signet on that thing to show that, one, it came from your family, and two, that nobody has opened it since it was delivered to you. Um, and so, uh, you know, my theological perspective is uh, Calvinistic or doctrines of grace. And one of the concepts there is it's this acronym TULIP. I don't know how interested you guys are in this, but um, TULIP is a way of summarizing the, the five points of Calvinism. And the P here, does anybody know what it stands for? 
perseverance of the saints. And what it really means is that because the Holy Spirit has done this work in saving you, and because of language like this, that you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, we would make this argument that if your heart has really been transformed by the grace of God, then that's something that God has done that cannot be undone. And the Holy Spirit seals that work and um, is the proof that it has occurred. Um, so let's look at a couple of different uh, passages that deal with this. Um, uh, you know, this, this Greek word sealed, it means closed up or certified or marked with an identity. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 9 with me real quick. So uh, this connects not only to what we're talking about, um, but also, uh, who, raise your hand if you've heard of the Mark of the Beast. Okay, who knows what the Mark of the Beast is? Yeah. So it's a mark that either people are going to, it's a mark that's either going to be done on the forehead or the wrist. And it's to pretty much, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much just a mark from, I don't know, I don't know how to put it. Like pretty much marks the Antichrist. Okay, so it is, it is a mark that identifies you with the Antichrist. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what this is. Um, there's a lot of pop fiction that talks about this. People think, you know, maybe it's a computer chip or it's some kind of tattoo or marking, forehead, wrist. Uh, so in order to really understand Revelation, you have to understand that Revelation is drawing imagery from the Old Testament. And so that imagery of the mark actually comes from Ezekiel chapter 9. But, but, but the forehead and wrist, I'm pretty sure. That's what I actually, it was, it's in the same Revelation specifically. It'll be in one of those two locations. So the, the issue with, yes, it, I think it pretty much talks about the forehead. The issue with that, though, is that that is, I, I would make the argument from my understanding of Revelation that, that that's all symbolic language. Where does the symbolism come from? It comes from here in, in Ezekiel chapter 9. Okay, So Ezekiel 9, starting in verse 1. Uh, actually, let's pick up in... Uh, Chapter 4. Actually, let's go back to, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 3. It says, Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And, he, and to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. So... Uh, here is the imagery of the mark. And actually, what do we see? It's God who sends his servant throughout Jerusalem to put a mark on the forehead of all the people that are faithful to him. So then in Revelation, Satan, who is you know, constantly mimicking God, trying to behave like he is God, 
does the inverse. He puts his mark on the foreheads of those who are faithful to him and who are rebellious against God. So I think this is all uh, symbolic language. I don't think that you know, a day is going to come and the government's going to say, you need to put this thing on your forehead or we're going to throw you in prison or something like that. What this is talking about is a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. And so uh, this is now what Paul is picking up on in Ephesians, right? You have the seal, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Um, and uh, let's, let me give another verse here. John 6, 27, and then we're going to look at something else in, in Ezekiel. So hang there. John 6, 27, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So Jesus has the seal of the Father, and then he gives to those who believe in him that same seal. Um, and then they say, what must we be do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So that's how that seal comes to us. Then in Revelation chapter 3, we're actually told that Christians are sealed. Um, and then in the end, Satan gets sealed in the... I'm just bringing some clarity on the word sealed here. It, this same word is used in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, when Satan is locked away. So that's where we would get this idea of like perseverance of the saints. Once that seal happens, it's permanent. Okay, but now Ezekiel 36, 26. Um, I think we've looked at this before, but I mean, I am a one-trick hat, and I use this verse all the time. And uh, this is, I, I think, a, a verse that every Christian should know. Ezekiel 36, 26. So before we read this, listen again. In him you also, that's in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit promised? Right here. Ezekiel 36, 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what does the seal of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, it looks like faithfulness. It looks like obedience. It looks like a new heart that actually does what God commands. And here is where it's promised. So Paul's saying uh, the, the Holy Spirit was promised. Where is it promised? Well, there's other places we can go in the Old Testament as well, but this is one of the clearest ones. There's a corollary passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, that also speaks about this. So, yeah, any questions on any of that? So the Ezekiel and Revelation verse you're talking about, about the mark, what, 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 which ones were those again? Did you have them down? Uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, really kind of beginning in verse 3, but that whole chapter kind of draws it out. And then uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 3. All right, thank you. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, my opinion would be to say that uh, the fact that the seal is visible physically or not uh, doesn't really matter anyways, right? Because it, the point is that they are sealed and protected or doomed, right? Yes. And in, in, in Ezekiel, uh, it's, it seems that it was physical because, right, the text is 
know the section where this is imagery, he's saying put the phone there for head, and then you go around and you, you slay the ones that don't have the mark. So one could argue that there was a visible sign right there. Um, and, uh, but then, yeah, I agree that uh, the Holy Spirit is definitely more mark visible that we can see. Uh, so in Revelation, uh, it's, not, it's not obvious that the mark will be uh, you know, only a spiritual mark. It may well be something that's also physical, like in the other instances. It's not, uh, it's not very obvious, but uh, yeah. I, I, I like the physical marker piece because I, I think it kind of distinguishes the different posts and uh, it's just not on the foreheads, also the hand. But, uh, but I guess the main part is the, the fact they are sealed and not sealed, right? Yeah, and that is the important piece. That that would be the piece that is really not debatable. I guess whether it's literal or, or figurative probably could be debated. I mean, I, I the way I understand chapter nine of Ezekiel here is that this is a this is a revelation. This is um, you know this man even clothed with linen. I think you could make the case that that that's actually like a Christophany. Um, so. Uh, but I've not looked closely at that, that enough to, I guess, determine what what most interpreters say there. My guess is there's probably some disagreement. But um, it's a little bit like the, when the, the, the Egyptians attacked the uh, when the Israelites are leaving Egypt, right? There is like a physical mark on the doorpost that has a spiritual meaning, right? And, and then the angel supernatural occurrence comes and then destroys the enemies. But yeah. Yes, it was a physical mark. Right? Yeah. For the sake of time, I, I don't want to get too deep into that, and I, I think that there, yeah, like I said, I think both of those positions are reasonable and could be argued for. One, one of the reasons why I do sort of press the, the spiritual aspect of this is because, at least in my experience growing up, I would frequently encounter people who were afraid, you know, it's like, well, you know, uh, you shouldn't use that credit card because that's the market. Like, there's just always, there's all this mythology that goes around it. And I think what the Bible makes very clear is like nobody is going to be like tricked into like you as a Christian, if you sincerely love Jesus, you're not going to be tricked into uh, what Satan is attempting to do in rebelling against God. Um, so you don't need to live in fear. If you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're not going to end up somehow accidentally taking the mark of the beast. Okay, yeah, that's, that's the same thing I hear so many, especially as Christians. I'd be so fearful of like, oh, my accident right. heart beat Mark right. like right. Mark the Beast is going to be something like you intentionally yes. do. Yes, yes. You are choosing a side. Either you are with Christ or you are against him. So whether it's physical or spiritual, that's kind of the key thing I want to encourage people with is like, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you love him, you have nothing to fear. Okay. All right. So the Holy Spirit is the uh, guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. Um. So a guarantee, what is a guarantee? Yeah, a guarantee is a promise. And in, in a sense, you can say that a guarantee is already fulfilled. Right? So maybe the best way for us to think about this kind of in modern terms is uh, anybody in here ever signed the papers to buy a house? Do they give you the keys right then? No, they don't, right? But you've signed the paperwork, which means what? 
They do in Michigan, really, yeah. right after you finish. Wow, okay. Yeah. Usually here, there's a little bit of a lag time while they finish up the yeah, moving of the money and stuff like that. Um, but that, that in-between space, what is true about the house and your ownership of it? You own it, right? Like you're on the hook for it at that point. But you don't walk through the door maybe for a couple of days or at least maybe a few hours. And so that's kind of the phase that we're in, right? Christ has done this work, and if we are in him, then the guarantee of heaven is secured. You've been sealed. It's stamped. It's done. It's closed. And yet you won't walk through that door until the resurrection. Does that kind of make sense? Um, so I think that's kind of the imagery that, that Paul has in mind here. Um, this is a great quote I came across in a book I'm reading. It says, For the Bible, the fullness of the Spirit belongs to the future age, not the present age. Yet it does not fully express the role of the Spirit to say only that uh, we have the Spirit now and will know more of His presence in the future. Rather, what is given to us now is the Spirit who rightly belongs to the future, whose presence in dwelling believers implies that future reality has become proleptically present. <laughs> that's, that's a lot to listen to and not read yourself. Proleptically present means that the, the reality actually exists even though the representation of it is only here. Okay? Um, so basically, we're, we're just kind of coming full circle here to talk about what is the inheritance. Well, it's all of the treasure of heaven and God himself, relationship with the Father, and uh, that has all been secured through Christ and the, 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 the Spirit in us. And then how does Paul end verse 14 there? To the praise of God's glory. Right? So all of that is for his glory. All right, I just wanted to finish some of that up. Let's get into verses 15 through 23 now. So back in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Man, that's beautiful and heavy, heavy stuff. And he put, so this is God, God put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Man, my brain was split in two places. The first place was just like the beauty of the verses, and the second place was like nightmare flashbacks to sentence diagramming, doing uh, Greek. <laughs> Sent sentence diagram verse, uh, verses 15 through 21. 
Sentence diagramming is just thinking through how do all the parts fit together and when Paul has these long run-on sentences, things get really wild. Um, but we're going to work our way kind of through this. Um, so I would argue, let's begin here, verse 15. Paul says, for this reason, and what is the reason? It actually follows. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So here's a question. Uh, when you have this and construction, you've got two things connected by the word, right? You've got thing number one, which is what? Because I've heard of your faith and what's the second thing? Love. So uh, just kind of something interesting to think through. So your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints. Okay, so the faith is directed towards Jesus. The love is directed towards the saints. Uh, what do you think? Are these two separate things or are they two connected things? The word and can be a connecting thing. And it can also be a dividing thing, right? On this table is my laptop and my coffee. That's connecting. They're both in the same place, right? Um, or I can say something like, um, we went to the store and we also went to the post office. Well, those are actually two totally different things, even though they're connected by the word and. So what do you think? Are these separate or connected? I would make the argument that they're connected. There's a technical word for this called a hendiatus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, I would call this a grammatical hendiatus. So in Paul's mind, faith in Jesus and love towards the saints are really two parts of one thing. You cannot have faith in Jesus that doesn't manifest in love towards the saints. And you cannot have love towards the saints that doesn't have its origin in faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? So this is why when people say things like, well, I really love Jesus, but I don't really participate in a church. I'm like, uh-uh, categorically, that's not something that exists in the Christian faith. Or vice versa. Well, I really, really, you know, love people, but, you know, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus. Well, there's no sincere love for your neighbor apart from Jesus who gives birth to sincere love. Does that make sense? So I would argue that these are actually two parts of one whole. Isn't this amazing? Like you can just read the Bible and be like, oh, that was good. Or you can sit and you can think and be like, oh my goodness, how do these parts fit together? What does this mean? What is actually being communicated to me here? Um, I love that, that like the Bible will be as deep as you choose to go into it. Does that make sense? Like you can read it kind of devotionally and shallowly and be like, wow, that was really a blessing. But you can also like read it slowly and chew it over and be like, oh my goodness, the depths of this is really incredible. Okay. Um, I, there's another place where Paul spells this out, which is another verse that I think every Christian should know. So go to, uh, uh, or sorry, it's just down in chapter two. So you can look down, I almost said scroll down. You can look down chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And we're going to get here later, but 
Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, it is a pronoun. What does it refer to here? What is the antecedent that it is connecting to? So when you say it, you, there's a reference to it. What is the it here referring to? The fact that you've been saved? Okay, so let's put that in there. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. The salvation is the gift of God. So that's one possibility. Grace through faith. You could say either grace or faith, both are the gift of God. And it's a package deal. They come together. Yeah, so that's the argument that I would, I would make, right? Um, is that the it is actually pointing back to grace and faith, which again are one unit. Paul has in mind that the it would be both of those things. And of course, Don, you're not wrong, because what does grace and faith produce? It produces our salvation, right? But the whole package of it is the gift. Some people will say, well, what Paul has in mind here with the it is he's referring to the grace. But the faith is actually yours. Right? Because he says, uh, and verse 8, and this is not your own doing. What's the this? Is it just the grace, or is it grace and faith, or is it just the faith? It is the gift of God. I would make the argument that, once again, just like we were looking at in chapter 1, Paul has in mind here that both the grace and the faith are the gift. Yes? Um, I didn't pull this up in Greek, but it's, it's, it's irrelevant. To, to smooth over the English, we may put that um, in there, but you can, you can read it without that. Well, right? my, my argument is that it is a symbol. So if you, maybe because I'm too much into grammar, but if you say that it is grace and faith and salvation, you will have to tell me that it's, it's, it's plural. In the original, because like in the thought of Paul, if that was this package, he would have used a plural. But he, as he did not use any of these, then you you your argument would be correct in that sense because that one does not. Paul she, did not use the, the pronoun. She does this to me all the time. That's good. <laughs> It helps me to, okay, okay, fine. Yeah. Okay, so. The gift of God, this is the gift of yeah. God. So it's the same idea. So I have two, two responses to that. First of all, it, actually, in the Greek, the grammar here is ambiguous. Greek connects words with word endings. And uh, what he says here, and, and I, I didn't look at it in preparation for this class, so this is a little bit just based off of prior memory. But what he says here is. Uh, the gift of God is grammatically ambiguous, whether it refers to grace or faith or both. <clears throat> Regarding the singular versus the plural, you are correct unless grace and faith make a unit. 
if they make a unit like the hendiatus that I was just talking about, then grammatically it's pr it's actually proper and appropriate to use a singular. So in this case, if race and faith are one thing, and they're basically in the package. Yes, then in, pa in Paul's it. mind, there's no separation between grace and faith. They are essentially, I mean, they're two different things, but they are, they, they have the same origin. They, they come from God. They're not from us. Does that make sense? So if he grammatically has in mind that they are a unit, then the singular is appropriate. And actually, I would make the argument that that proves my point. If he's using a singular, then he's not seeing these things as two different uh, realities. They're, they're part and parcel. One, they make one whole. So, I mean, this is kind of debated. It's not debated, debated grammatically, actually. Um, the, I think the grammar here is pretty, uh, it's a pretty closed case. But um, a lot of people will, will read Ephesians uh, 2.8 and basically say, see, Paul is only talking about grace, but the faith is mine. And I would say that actually the gift is the faith that leads to the grace, which means it's both. Good questions, though. Okay, let's, uh, unless anybody's got any other questions there. Well, and then, you know, um, well, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll just close that. I won't get into that. Sorry. Okay, so Paul now offers this wonderful prayer for his fellow believers. And uh, I want to highlight this prayer, and I also want to... Um, Highlight the prayer in chapter 3 as well. And I, I mean, if I could give you like a homework assignment, it would be to go home and think through the way Paul prays for the church here um, in verses 15 through 23. And then also chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And then, not to make you feel bad, but compare your prayers to his prayers. And what I mean by that is a lot of times when we get together and pray, it's like, well, pray for my Aunt Sally. She's sick, and my neighbor's dog is having surgery. And, like, <laughs> the Bible invites us to pray for anything, right? Let your request be made known. Um, that's the end of Philippians chapter 4. And uh, so we can literally pray for anything, but... Did you know that there's no recorded prayers in the New Testament for somebody to get healthy? I mean, James says if somebody's sick, send the elders to pray or call the elders to pray for them. So, again, those are things that we can do. But the kinds of prayers that we have recorded for us in the Bible are so beautiful, so lofty. So, like, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says... He prays that they would know the unknowable love of God. Right? How's that for a prayer request? Beautiful. So uh, this is just a rich, rich prayer. Okay. So here are the ingredients of the prayer. Okay. <clears throat> First, you have thanksgiving to God. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you. Um, I think thanksgiving is a beautiful way to begin prayer. <clears throat> Are you guys familiar with this very simple prayer method, Acts? I, I, I like this as kind of a, a rubric, a format for praying when I'm struggling to focus.
and I begin to just pray prayers that are all about me, 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 me. Um, I like this method. Adoration. So adoration, I think, would be praise to God for who he is. <clears throat> he's good, he's righteous, he's holy, he's beautiful, he's full of truth, he's powerful, he's wise. <clears throat> uh, C is confession. So we can confess our sins to God and receive his forgiveness. The T is thanksgiving. Um, you know, the difference between adoration and thanksgiving, there's a lot of overlap here, but I would say thanksgiving is more giving God um, praise for what he has done. So this is who he is. This is what he has done. And then the last one is supplication which is just a fancy word for uh, asking. So then your request. You know what I found when I really put this into practice? When I'm distracted and I pray, where do I begin? I go straight to supplication. Oh, Lord, my life is hard. Here's all these problems. And I just, I bit, really, I just whine. But you know what I find is when I practice this kind of method to prayer and I work my way through this, um, usually, also, when, I, when I'm going straight to supplication, um, my prayers don't last very long. But, man, when I start to, like, think about who God is and give him praise, and then I begin to think about my sin and what a wretch I am, and then I begin to give God thanks for everything that he's done, including forgiving me of my sins, you know what happens by the time I get down to supplication? I'm like, Lord, I, I, there were some things that brought me to prayer that I was going to pray about, but they're suddenly not as important. I don't even really remember them anymore. All the things that I wanted to whine about. Does that make sense? Um, so I kind of like that method. Anyway, Paul does something kind of like that, where he begins with thanksgiving. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And then he, uh, he remembers, which I think also connects to thanksgiving. I'm remembering you in my prayers. Why? Well, because of all the work that I've seen God do in your life. Um, and, and then, of course, he remembers to pray for them, not only for himself, but he lifts them up to, to pray for them, right? Remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus may give you the spirit of wisdom, okay? Um, he also included in here in verse 17, though, is he gives glory to God. It's, it's subtle, but verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So it's, it's subtle. He's not like launching into this long diatribe of why God is worthy of adoration, but he says this is the God of glory. And then he includes a petition for knowledge. Verse 17, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, uh, how many of your Bibles capitalize spirit in verse 17? The ESV does. You just need to understand that is a interpretive decision. So... Um, the, the Greek that Paul is writing in, 
does not have uh, capital letters. Actually, I should say that differently. It's all capital letters. Um, so when you encounter this word, I mean, I think most of the translations do a good job and they, they, they're doing the interpretation for you, but this is just something to think about. Um, what is being implied by capitalizing that word spirit? Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit, right? Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit here. And I, I agree with that, but that's an interpretive decision when you see that capitalized S because there's no way for Paul to do that in Greek. Does that make sense? Okay. So may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so this all falls under his petition for knowledge. Man, Trisha really messed me up by taking up my whiteboard today. Let's, um, let's outline this. Petition for knowledge. There's a couple things under here. What are they? We've already mentioned some of them. Spirit of wisdom. Paul wants the church in Ephesus to have the spirit of wisdom. What what comes after that? The knowledge of him. I'm going to include knowledge of him in here. Okay? Spirit of wisdom and knowledge in him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, right? So heart enlightened. What's next? That you may know the hope. What's next? Wisdom, nice uh, triad, uh, faith, hope, and love, right there. There you so go. Started with uh, faith and love, and that leads to uh, biblical hope. Yeah, that's good. Like first that's great, man. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, riches of his inheritance. We got one more. My writing is going to get increasingly terrible as I get low down here. Yeah, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Immeasurable, man. Okay. Man, what a beautiful prayer for God's people. Right? That, so this is all the petition for knowledge. I think this all falls kind of under one kind of heading here. That they would have the spirit of wisdom, that their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know hope, that they would understand the riches of his inheritance, that they would see the greatness of his power. That's, don't you wish that you comprehended those things more? 
Um, then number six, I would say it connects it all to the gospel that this power has been used to raise the Jesus and that he is now having all power in heaven. So he does pray for that too, right? And uh, looks like it's key. Yeah, so that's where I, I was going next is I think he, he moves from this and, and then points us to the work of God, right? So he moves from, I want you to understand these things and we reflect on what God has done. So what has God done? It's all according to the working of his great might. How did he work it out? Well, particularly in Christ, that he worked in Christ. And in what way did he accomplish that? Well, he raised Christ from the dead. And not only that, but then he did what with Christ? End of verse 20. He seated him in the heavenly places. Right? So, why, I mean, look, why, why is the spirit of wisdom available to us? How can the heart be enlightened? Why should we have hope? What are these riches? What is the greatness of his power? Well, Paul says, look to what God has done, particularly in the person of Christ, in the resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus. Okay? And then it goes beyond that, as if that wasn't enough. Then he moves into this reflection on Christ's dominion. So how can we be certain that if we ask these kinds of things from God, that it will be fulfilled? That God will is able or willing or eager to grant that? Well, because Christ has dominion. Um, verse 21. Jesus has authority far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put under his feet all things, given him as head, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All right, that was a quick overview. Now let's go into more detail. Is that okay? Um, so let's work through some of the application here. Going all the way back to the beginning, thanksgiving to God. Paul says, I did not cease to give thanks for to you. Maybe it's just because I'm a pastor and so my whole life is wrapped up in this, but one of the things that just irks me to no end is how little people actually love the church. Um... And I don't mean Maricopa Springs. I just mean we, the way I always think about it is like, what happens if my cell phone provider upsets me? I just go get a new one, right? I walk into AT&T and I say, I'm tired of you guys. You made me mad. I'm going to go over to Verizon, right? And when Verizon makes me mad, I'm tired of you guys. I'm going over to Sprint. That's how people treat their churches. That's ridiculous. And uh, Paul instead says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So how do you think about the church? Is it with thanksgiving and praise? Every Sunday I go to put my uh, the signs that I put out for church in the back of my car to set them out. And I, I wonder what my neighbors think because here I am, well, this is me dressed up. So here I am dressed up on Sunday morning at 7 o'clock loading signs in my car. And uh, I have to think most of my neighbors are like, why does this guy do this? Like, I'm so glad that I don't have to go to boring church. And I was sitting there like, 
I'm so excited to go gather with the people of God today, right? But is that really how most people think about church? And I'm not setting myself up as like the ideal here. I'm simply saying Paul gives a lot of praise for the church. And it makes me wonder, do we view the body of Christ as something to be thankful for? Verse 2, or not verse 2, sorry, the next part. Uh, he, he says that he remembers them in his prayers. Do you pray for the church? I mean, I pray for you. Um, I see our phone app, you know, bling with prayers. I rarely respond. Um, but I see the prayers. I pray for those. But I don't even have to see the prayers because, like the prayer requests, right? When somebody's like, um, what was the recent one? Somebody's uh, aunt or, or, or grandfather or something like that. Whatever. The point is, I don't even have to see those because I can pray this prayer, right? I, I pray for our church that we would have the spirit of wisdom, that our hearts would be enlightened to understand, that we would know the hope, that we would be able to comprehend the riches of our inheritance in Christ Jesus, that we would be able to see the greatness of his power. And uh, I think some people probably think, well, yeah, Grady, you're the pastor, so like that's what you get paid to do. Um, I, I wonder how much stronger churches would be if one, if pastors were more faithful to pray for their churches, or if elders were more faithful to pray for their churches, but also if the flock were more faithful to pray for the church, and the pastor and the elders, but also for the congregation as a whole. Um, Paul says that he remembers them in his prayers, and he doesn't cease to give thanks. That's significant. Okay. Then he gives glory to God, right? I, I mentioned this. Uh, this is just a very subtle thing, but in verse 17, the Father of glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, um, is our ambition as believers to seek the glory of God. I mean, we can we could ask this question, why did Christ come to earth? Why was he incarnate? There's lots of ways that we can answer that, but one of the answers is, to glorify his father. Is that how you perceive your own life? Like, why do you have breath and life? To bring glory to God. Right? Um, man, what might our lives look like if that was like a conscious thought in our minds more often? You know, why am I in this meeting for work? To glorify God. Why am I scraping macaroni and cheese off the floor again today to glorify God why am I running my children into their different activities well ultimately it's for God's glory right how that actually works all the time might not be clear but it's for God's glory always everything it's amazing to me that literally Jesus like there's nothing that occurred in Jesus life that wasn't for the glory of God that's an amazing thought. I mean, there's nothing that occurs in your life that isn't for the glory of God either, but Jesus was set on that task, whereas we're often distracted from it. Okay, next we have this petition for knowledge that we talked about. So you do understand, uh, you know, it, he says here um, that in verse 17, that, may, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. First of all, who's the him? I think it's actually specifically Jesus. 
okay? I would argue that it's Jesus. There's no greater revelation than Jesus Christ. To think on Jesus is the ultimate thing. Like, I, I don't know exactly, obviously, what heaven will be like. Um, but have you ever been so wrapped up in something that you couldn't tear your eyes away from it? Have you ever observed, I mean, there's lots of people with little kids in the room. Have you ever observed a parent who is just like sucked up into something and then their kid comes and they're like, mommy, 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 mommy. And it takes like a minute for the mom to be like, oh yeah, my kid is talking to me. I mean, we all have moments like that. There will be a day where you will see the face of Jesus and you have no idea how hard it will be to just tear your eyes away from him. Like you will want nothing more than to just spend eternity gazing at the glory of Jesus Christ. I don't even know how we will end up being torn away from that. I, I suspect he'll give us some instructions that will cause us to be like, okay, I need to go do that. But there's no greater revelation than Jesus Christ. There's no more ultimate thing for humans to give themselves to than giving him attention. And it's not some mystical thing that Paul wants here, this spirit of the wisdom of revelation in Christ. It's just to know Jesus more. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, uh, Whatever was to my profit, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. I consider all those other things that I was pursuing rubbish compared to Jesus. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Yeah. Sorry, I, I wanted to share something about the earlier aspects of his uh, prayer. Yeah. Um, you know when he said, like, uh, I don't know why people don't come to church more. Um, I, I also like this part. Uh, I do not give, cease to give thanks for you. He, he mentioned for you in my prayers, and earlier he talks about faith. The, the, the nuance I like to think about when I think about this verse is that He's, he's giving thanks for the fact that people have faith. In other words, he's just thankful that these people became Christians. Mm. You know, and so That's good. There's another verse uh, in First Thessalonians, which actually, now that I look at it, it's very similar. Yeah. First Thessalonians 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. And so basically, uh, he's really thankful that people are believers. And, uh, you know, when somebody is baptized, this ought to be a time where you have a smile that goes up to your ears. And you're really thankful. And sometimes I'm afraid that people take this as a casual moment. You know, there's like no emotion. This is a special moment when someone is is testifying that they believe in the Lord Jesus and they are added to God's family. Of course, they were added before, but that's the ceremony. Right. And so, you know, he's thankful that he went, he preached, he shared the gospel, and these people responded, and now you are in the church, and you see young believers, you're thankful. This person is a believer. This person has faith. Has faith. Amen. And this idea that, wow, I'm thankful that God has saved people in our church, and God is saving people. Amen. That's good, man. Thank you for sharing that.
Amen. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I mean, to maybe just tack something onto that, like, if you're in a season of your life where you feel like you don't have much to give thanks for based on your own circumstances, then look around you at the body of Christ and say, I'm thankful for my brother in Christ. I'm thankful for my sister in Christ. I'm thankful for the work that God has done in their lives. Does that make sense? Anyway, thank you for adding that. Appreciate that, Jonas. Um, all right, then we have uh, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Um, yeah, Paul's concern here is for the spiritual maturity of the church. They would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Um, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So included in this would be assurance. Right? To know the hope. I mean, am I the only one who, like, in my prayer life goes to God and it's like, God, why do you love me? I'm such a miserable, wretched person. And, like, if it was up to me, I would have lost my salvation, right? Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't earn it. I, I obviously can't keep it. Like, and yet there's something so wonderfully freeing in knowing the hope that we have. And that it was secured and accomplished by Christ. And we can know this for certain because Paul will end his prayer in verses 19 through 23. uh, Talking about the authority of Christ. His power, his dominion, his authority. Right? So our hope is secured by his work. Um, Next, he's got this phrase that he says in... um, what are the riches of his of his uh, glorious inheritance in the saints? Verse 18. So uh, there's another grammatical thing here. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So there's potentially two ways to understand the verse grammatically. The inheritance of Christ is the saints. So Jesus inherits the saints. Or the inheritance of the saints is the riches of Christ. Which do you think it is? Well, maybe I've presented you with a false dichotomy. Why can't it be both? Uh, We could go to other passages of Scripture, and I didn't write them down, so you'll have to forgive me, but... Uh, Jesus is described as the bridegroom and his reward is described as the bride, the church. He bought her, right? And uh, vice versa, like we as the bride receive all of the riches of Christ. We're adopted, we're co-heirs with him. So I think that, I think you could look at this either way and you're biblically on sound (coughs) ground. Um, and then getting into verse 19 what are the what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe so do you have power Sh- 
sure you don't have your own power. Uh, you're weak and frail and perishable. But Christ in the gospel has empowered you, given you victory over sin and death. Um, you know, Paul can write that we're more than conquerors. Like, who's more powerful than a conqueror? Paul says we're more than conquerors through Christ. So, I was going to go into uh, a bit of a theological or a philosophical discussion here. It's nine forty-four. You know, it's kind of. I'll just. I'll just maybe try and end with this. Um, and even though I have lots more notes, Jonas, I'm going to let you pick up next week where you're scheduled to pick up. Um, what is the big idea of our modern age? I talk about this a lot. It is the idea of autonomy. Another word for that would be self-actualization. Um, what is the whole engine driving the LGBTQ ridiculousness? It is self-actualization. I want to be who I want to be. And uh, where I was going to go with this is trace it actually back to, I mean, I think there's really four guys who ruined the world, um, you know, other than Satan in the garden. But uh, between Darwin, Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx, we have the mess that we have in modernity. But Nietzsche, all of his writing was about this idea called the will to power. And it was all about self-actualization. That uh, the problem with man is that he is not actualizing himself in the way that he wants to be. And the world would be a better place if we did. And that's the ruin that we're in. And that's, that's what Satan said to Adam and Eve. You have the power in you to do what you want. And I think what Paul is saying here is actually, you have no power. But in Christ, you have the power to be like Christ. And that's what man was made to be. There is no power in the will of man, but there is power in the will of God. And so when your will aligns with God's will, then you actually have this spiritual power. Does that make sense? The power, let me try and say it one other way. The power is not in your will. Your will is weak and ruined. The power is in God's will. And to bring your will into alignment with his will that's where spiritual power exists. That's the power he's given us. All right. Hopefully that makes sense and that wasn't too esoteric. But let's just pray. God, we thank you for this immeasurable, the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. We thank you that it has redeemed us and secured our salvation. We thank you that we know that's true because of the seal of the Holy Spirit placed on us. And Lord, I ask that we would walk in this grace and faith in a way that does honor you, that our will would align with your will, and that uh, all of our lives would then be to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name, amen.